Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And this is Jill Wine Banks. And I'm wearing a special pin for our guest today. It says, and I don't know, Alan, if you can see this, it says Faux News. And it seemed appropriate for the discussion that we're going to have because um, you, of course, are the head of the News Literacy Project, which aims to address one of Victor's and my biggest concerns in the world, which is how to get people to recognize fake news, to recognize misinformation, disinformation, to think more critically about the information they consume. And um, I want our audience to know that you are the perfect person to lead a group like that, that before founding and leading the News Literacy Project, you were a reporter uh, for the LA Times and you won a Pulitzer Prize. And I wanna hear more about that because that's pretty impressive. That was for national reporting in 2003. And so, before we get to that, I want to say thank you for not only founding and running this organization, but for being here with us. We're very, very happy to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. So, so let's start with your news literacy project and tell us more about it, why you founded it, what it can mean to the people listening to this podcast um, or watching us on YouTube right now or later. So the News Literacy Project is a national educational nonprofit uh, that produces programs and resources to both teach and help others learn how to know what news and other information to trust. We instill an appreciation of the role of the free press and the First Amendment in a democracy and give people the tools to be equal, informed, and engaged participants in the public life of their communities. And I started NLP in 2008 uh, and helped found the field of news literacy after working for 29 years as a journalist, because I was concerned then about two things. One was how my own daughter, who was then 12, was accessing and valuing the tsunami of sources of, of news and information, such varying credibility, accountability, and transparency, and also the beginning of the breakdown of the business model for journalism and whether there would continue to be an appreciation and demand for it. So we are the national leaders in the field, and we, in addition to working still at the education level across the country, we're now also working with the broader public because we realized a few years back that misinformation is such an existential threat to democracy that we could not just wait to educate the next generation. We needed to reach all generations. I, I, I think for our podcast, which is all generational for sure, yeah. Yeah. having Victor and me as the co-hosts. I mean, I, I love what you just said about trying to reach all generations, because if you only reach younger generations, it's still um, a, a very short term, like a long term solution to very immediate problems. So I'm glad that you're trying to reach all generations. But still, one of the biggest concerns that I see even with my peers is the inability to separate fact from fiction, opinion from real news. How prevalent is that problem in America right now? Well, I think it's, it's one of the great challenges of our time. I mean, uh, first of all, we live in the most fraught information landscape in human history. I mean, this should be a golden age of information because we have more credible and valuable information available to us literally at our fingertips than ever before. But it's competing for our attention with so much more information that is not intended to inform us in a dispassionate, accurate, accountable way, but to sell, to persuade, to mislead, to misinform. And it's very difficult to sort the information wheat from the chaff in this environment. Uh, we now know, of course, that tens of millions of Americans believe and have acted on conspiratorial thinking. Um, and public opinion surveys show that, you know, uh, a very large percentage of people say it is difficult, very challenging to sort fact from fiction. And, and we also see a general breakdown of trust as a result. Uh, trust in all institutions, uh, and the news media, as well as, as well as government uh, and business uh, and and other parts of society. Um, so, on top of this, um, we've got you know an environment, uh, a landscape where there's no barrier to entry uh, for grifters or hoaxes uh, or for foreign governments uh, that want to create information, whether it's for. Um, uh, partisan purposes or for profit uh, or to create mischief or to undermine democracy. Uh, and so that's why, again, we feel this is 
really a survival skill, the ability to know what to do, trust and particularly what to share and act on uh, in this age. And it's absolutely essential uh, to be an informed and engaged participant in democracy. Boy, that is the truth. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember long ago when Russia used propaganda, which was misinformation or disinformation, but it was used as deliberate propaganda. And now we're seeing, for example, and my phone news pin, by the way, also has the logo of Fox News on it, which seems very appropriate in light of the Dominion lawsuit and the discovery that has shown us how they are using total conspiracy theories, totally unfounded uh, information that they know to be false and they're using it anyway. Um, and I'm just wondering, based on you know disinformation, misinformation that has now captured such a large audience, even if it was only on Fox News, and it isn't limited to that, but even if it was only Fox News, they are the largest cable channel. And so they have a huge audience and I'm wondering what is the reason that their audience can fall for this? How can they, for example, they're not even reporting on the discovery or the lawsuit so that their audience doesn't even know that they've basically admitted that they lie. They basically have shown through their emails and their texts that they have disdain for their own audience and for their guests. You have Tucker Carlson saying, I hate Trump passionately, or Sidney Powell is an idiot. Same for Rudy Giuliani. Um, so is this because social media with its, as you mentioned, its low, no cost entry, uh, or is it because of Trump's unapologetic statements, or is it because of the lack of critical thinking not being taught in school? What, how have we gotten to this point? So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I do think that uh, we've seen a decline in the teaching of civics and maybe to some extent, you know, in, in terms of critical thinking. This is beginning to come back now uh, and there's and there's efforts at, at, uh, in a number of states have, have brought back uh, uh, either civics or, um, you know, how to how to know uh, what news and information to trust as a as a part of their teaching. Not enough. We advocate that across the country. Um, I think, um, look, the, the Internet and technology have really fragmented uh, the information landscape. And so, you know, there is an opportunity for people to only go to those sources that will confirm their pre-existing beliefs as opposed to challenge them. Um, and this and, you know, this obviously uh, the, the sense of hyperpolarization, uh, tribalism, uh, growing sense of, of grievance um, has helped to fuel this. And so they're, they're, we see people who are essentially in their, in their filter bubbles and, and engaged in echo chambers, whether it's online or whether it's through cable news. Um, and that just has deepened, deepened the polarization. And, it's, and in some ways, it, it inoculates people from being uh, uh, facing the uh, challenges to their beliefs. Um, we've also seen that there's a tendency you know, for confirmation bias for people to to believe what they choose to believe and then to dismiss what challenges their belief as as fake news or or as biased and it's one of the things that we teach about is to be aware of the your own biases that you bring i you know i think in terms of the 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 situation with fox it's what we might talk about as a, as a teachable moment uh i mean one of the things one of the foundational lessons uh in our in our virtual classroom which is called checkology we call info zones, uh, where you have to distinguish, learn to distinguish between news and opinion and advertising and propaganda in terms of its main purpose. So you see in, in the Dominion case, you know, that, that there was a highly reputable decision desk at Fox that, you know, called the election accurately, the election in Arizona uh, for Biden in 2020, uh, that led to a lot of internal uh, angst and anger about this. You also had, a, had somebody on the news side who was doing fact-checking about the false claims around the election, uh, who who later uh, left the organization. Um, and a lot of what we're seeing come out in this uh, in in the Dominion case, of course, are the uh, opinion hosts uh, who we know have had you know strong ties. 
to the to the president to former president trump and now what we're seeing is that they were actually uh, putting people on the air who were saying things and they were sharing things that they themselves did not believe so you know our goal we are rigorously nonpartisan. i want to underscore is to give people the tools to make those judgments about what they see uh and and this is a case where there's an opportunity obviously there's a lot more that's been disclosed for them to decide if this is credible credible source yeah so before we get to the tools which i think victor wants to ask you about um you there was one phrase there that you said that i want to pick up on and that was that they see and the problem is as you've said we have a fragmented uh, media landscape now and you can see only those things that reflect your views. And that was one of the reasons that Fox was lying was because their audience wanted to hear those lies. They did not want to hear the facts. They did not want to know the truth. And so when you say that they see, how do you get them to see MSNBC, not just Fox, to see the facts? Well, you know, look, I think I, I have to say here, I, I think that um, that that the cable stations in general have a real mix of of news and opinion. Uh, it, it's not unique to Fox. And I think it's I think it makes it somewhat sometimes challenging for viewers to sort through what it is that they're seeing, um, you know, and what they're looking at. Um, look, I think that one of the reasons we chose uh, when I started NLP uh, to, to work in schools in middle schools and high schools is to reach, uh, young people before they've already gotten into their filter bubbles and, and have, you know, are deeply invested in, in partisan views and, and perhaps seeing the news through prisms of red and blue. And, and when you do that, I think you tend to see the world in terms that are more black and white. And so, I think that's that's one reason. It's obviously harder when you're talking about the general public. First of all, so many more people and people who are more deeply invested sometimes in in uh, seeing the news in in terms certain terms that they they will believe only those things that confer, confirm to their beliefs and and uh, conform to their beliefs and uh, dismiss everything else. So we know we, we, in our efforts, can't reach everybody. We do believe that there are a lot of people out there who may be struggling with knowing what to trust in such a challenging environment and are looking for tools and resources to be able to make those judgments. And also people who wanna be part of an information solution instead of the disinformation problem and to share with others. And we encourage people to push back against misinformation, to push back against bias when they see it, uh, to weigh in and be upstanders for facts. And I think, you know, our goal really, Jill is to, and Victor, is to change the culture in the ways that we've seen around issues like drunk driving and littering and smoking so that people have a sense of personal responsibility because the, the viral information cannot, misinformation cannot get uh, the kind of reach it does without many of us sharing it often inadvertently. Yeah. So we want to reach those who are open uh, to to be more responsible, to empowering their voices, and to pushing back against this toxic tide of misinformation. So I, I want to ask you about the tools that um, you want your um, maybe people in the classroom to take away and also um, people watching and listening to this. But before I do that, I just came from a class. Um, it was this is our last week uh, in this English class. And we were talking about the, the death of English departments, not maybe the death, but the decline of English departments. And the professor asked us why he, she thinks, you know, why we think that um, English is a useful degree. And I can't tell you the overwhelming number of people who said English and, and any type of communications or news literacy or, or um, social media literacy class teaches you how to critically think. And there isn't enough of that in the world anymore. And so people aren't taking these classes. They think that there isn't enough of a job market out there if you take these classes and majors. And it was just really interesting to me to kind of be a part of that and listen to my peers and, and the professors say that, you know, not enough people are taking these classes where it teaches you how to critically think. So um, I, I think it's really important to have news literacy and also just any type of communications class that teaches you how to evaluate and critically look at um, information. 
But let's take a couple of scenarios and maybe have you tell us what you hope young people in our audience will do as news literate citizens. And one of the things that Joel and I talk a lot about is how to even read an online article. Um, and I'm wondering what you have to say on, on that and, and what you would tell our audience in terms of what you would do or what they should do when they read an article online. You know, is this, is this something that purports to be news and to inform me in a dispassionate, contextual, accurate way? Or is this something that's trying to persuade me or to sell things, especially if it's something that appeals to our emotions? Because if it's something that really makes you very angry or anxious or excited, that's often when the thinking part of our brain shuts down and we're more vulnerable to being manipulated. And so you want to see, well, who, who created this? Can you tell where this came from? You know, is it is it a reputable source? Can you check it out? Are you familiar with it? Are there sources in what you're looking at uh, so that you can make up your mind? Are there multiple points of view provider or is it just one side of, of an issue? Um, is there ver is there documentation that you can look at? Um, is this something that seems to be presented in a more dispassionate way? Or is it clearly there's very strong bias in what you're looking at? And sometimes there's telltale signs with lots of capital letters or lots of exclamation points. Um, are other people reporting this? Um, if it's coming from one place and it seems too incredible to be true or too good to be true, it may not be true. Yeah. Uh, generally, you know, it's something that if it's, if it's real and it's important, it'll be widely shared. And then you need to follow a story or an issue over time. I mean, truth is often provisional. It takes time to emerge, especially on big breaking stories where journalists are racing, racing to, to verify facts or scientists may be trying to, to nail things down. And that's a time when we're really vulnerable because when the bad actors come in and they try to set the narrative and to exploit people's emotions at that time. And then most of all, most important of all, you need to ask yourself, should I trust this? Should I share it? Should I act on it? Yeah. And, and that's where we need to empower people to be responsible upstanders for facts. What about clicking through? Because the advantage to me of reading the newspaper online is that when it says, for example, someone was indicted, I don't have to take their summary of the indictment. I can click on the word indictment and I can read it. And that gives me the facts. Then I know that they're either accurate or not in how they're portraying the case brought against somebody. Um, is that one of the benefits of being online? Absolutely. So credible sources don't just ask you to trust them. They give you the basis for doing so. Yeah. And you can, you can, as you said, you can click on and look at what, what, the, what the source of that information is. Um, uh, good news pieces should show you sources and methods. Uh, they should also tell you what they don't know, what isn't known yet. And, and that's true of the best of the independent fact checking as well. Uh, it doesn't ask for your trust, it earns it. So I, I see that in, I, I subscribe to several newsletters and it's not just the person writing its opinion. They always say, as reported in, and you can yeah, see yeah. exactly what they're relying on. And that gives me trust in what their conclusions are. Right. That's one of the best parts. Um, some of my favorite Substack authors, you know, Robert Hubble, Heather Cox Richardson, at the end of their... Um, and Joyce Vance. And Joyce Vance, yes. At the end of their Substacks, they always include their sources. And that's so helpful for people reading through just to know that what they're telling people are based off of uh, facts and real reporting. Um, another scenario that I want to ask you about is what about things that we see on social media? Obviously, as young people, we grow up on social media more than kind of any other generation. We're more digitally connected than any other generation. What is your advice to young people, especially on what they sh what should be going through their heads when they look at something through their phones on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter or Facebook? Not that that's being used anymore, but uh, on some of those more popular social media sites. Well, again, I would say to be very, very skeptical and, and wary. You know, we know that uh, the platforms, you know, they rely on eyeballs and engagement. And very often it's the most inflammatory and sensational and partisan type posts that will engender that kind of engagement. Yeah. Um, and so, again, I think it's critical that people stop and take a look at what they're viewing uh, or hearing 
and and ask themselves, uh, you know, is this something that is trustworthy? Is it something that what what is the intent of it? Uh, and and is it something that it's responsible uh, to believe and to share? You know, very often um, young people and others, of course, are getting news and getting credible information, you know, through through their phones and through social media posts. But the problem, the challenge is that it's mixed up with everything else. And, and, it's, and this is why news literacy, this, this ability uh, to, to sort the, the information wheat from the chaff is so critical um, because it's, it's so challenging for all of us. Absolutely. And the, the last scenario that I want to ask you about is what about hearing something? We, we talked about Fox News a little bit before, but when we're watching TV or when we're watching YouTube shows, how should how should people take what they hear from, say, Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity and, and process that information? Well, again, it, it starts with an understanding of of who you're watching or, or, or listening to. Yeah. Um, you know, is this is this a news broadcast uh, or is it somebody who is um, sharing their opinion and 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 maybe a very strongly partisan opinion? Um, there are, you know, different standards that apply here, and there's a different purpose um, for 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 those who are are creating that information. Um, so that's the first step. And then again, I think that you need to uh, get a broad range. Uh, we encourage people to get, a, you know, to broaden their their news diet so that they're not only going to to one side of the spectrum to get a, a wide range of views challenge their pre-existing views um, and then um, listen for information that uh, they can they can test uh, and, and verify uh, in terms of again the, the sourcing the facts uh, the verification yeah yeah so you introduced the idea of news literacy and and to me, um, that seems like something that should be in every middle or high school in America. I um, didn't even take my first, I mean, we, we aren't required to take any news literacy in, in high school or middle school, but I took my first news literacy class in college. And it was one of the best, most kind of eye-opening experiences because as a passive consumer of information, it's different to actually be an active consumer of information and think through those um, questions that you just posed. How prevalent is news literacy as a course in America? And what are some of the results that we've seen from it? So we are kind of an offshoot or a way of teaching media literacy, which is a field that had been around a lot longer. Um, and um, you know, our focus obviously is on how to know what to believe and uh, you know, an appreciation of the First Amendment uh, and, and a free press. Um, there are uh, a limited number of states that require uh, this basic critical thinking skill. Uh, I think I may have mentioned earlier, Illinois, now most recently, Delaware and New Jersey and, and Texas will be uh, fully implementing that in a few years. Um, we would like to see all states required for graduation. I mean, this is ultimately how you fix the problem. Uh, if you recognize that it's a survival skill and, and critical for participation in democracy. Um, we've seen, um, you know, we've been working since 2009 uh, in middle schools and high schools throughout the country. Uh, and we've seen that this can be transformative. Uh, our, our data shows that, you know, students, they learn the standards of quality journalism, which we use as kind of an aspirational yardstick against which to measure all news and information. Uh, they're better able to determine, you know, what is credible. Uh, they're more responsible about what they share. Uh, they learn the First Amendment uh, and gain a greater appreciation for it. And they learn more about the watchdog role of news. We also know anecdotally they become tend to become more civically engaged uh, with the wider world. And I've seen this firsthand having been in lots of classrooms um, in, in underserved communities and other communities, um, just how transformative uh, this can be, how empowering it can be, because it is so broadly applicable, you know, whether to something that, that a student hears, you know, in the hallway or sees on social media or making a decision about you know college or about a first job or about going to the military you know this is something that can be applied and then of course in terms of engaging uh with the news and and knowing what to trust uh, uh it it really uh it really is incredibly empowering 
how widespread is the availability of news literacy, both in America and are there any other countries that are doing this sort of training? And do you have anything online so that if your school system doesn't offer it, there's a way for access? So it, it is not nearly as widespread as we believe it needs to be uh, in the United States. There are other countries that are well ahead. Uh, the best example is Finland, where they have really integrated uh, media literacy in all subjects, uh, not just English and social study and history, but uh, in math and science and, and throughout the curriculum. And surveys show that there, it's had a real impact, that you've got a much more news literate uh, nation as a result. We think that's a great model. So to answer your question, yes, we have a lot of resources that are available, uh, both for educators uh, and for the public. Uh, I had mentioned we have a virtual classroom called Checkology, which is a cutting edge online platform with real world lessons led by a diverse and dynamic group of journalists and experts on the First Amendment and digital media. And that's available at checkology.org. How do you spell that? Uh, C-H-E-C-K-O-L-O-G-Y. Okay. Uh, Checkologists. Okay. Checkologists. And that is available, by the way, for both educators and students and the general public. Then we produce a newsletter which debunks the latest viral rumors, conspiracy theories, and hoaxes. And we have a version for educators called The Sift and a version for the general public called Get Smart About News. Uh, we have an app called Informable, which is a game that tests and builds news literacy skills for all ages. And our own podcast uh, called Is That a Fact? that looks at the impact of misinformation on democracy. And most recently, uh, we've created a new platform, which is called Rumor Guard, which we launched in October. And this is a place where you can go to see the most prevalent viral rumor debunked and why it is false. And then we provide social media posts that you can share to push back against that rumor. We actually have weekly alerts where we share them, make it very easy for people to help in this asymmetric battle between the bad actors and, and those of us who would like to uh, create a more, more credible info, uh, info landscape. Um, and if you wanna then learn how to do some of the debunking yourself, um, we teach uh, how to do um, reverse image searching and what we call lateral reading, where you get off the site and go to another site to check. And we really want to create a community of news literacy practitioners and see Rumor Guard as a hub uh, to build that more news literate America. Wow, that sounds like something that I want to register for. If I go on your website, can I register for that Rumor Guard? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, I'm going to do that because as careful as I am, occasionally I'll read something and go, oh, that's fantastic. And I'll <laughs> okay. go to retweet it. And as soon as I start to click, I go, wait a minute. That's probably too good to be true. I better check it. And of course, nine times out of 10, when it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true and it isn't, it's a fake. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think your organization is doing some amazing stuff. Um, and I, I wanna make sure that everybody listening knows that we're going to put a link to your website and to all these other resources there. Um, and before we move on to talk about a specific example of how you talk to people who consume their news from Fox and how you can tell if you're listening to Fox, whether the emails behind it say we're lying and we know it, or whether they actually think it's true. I, I just want to talk about your Pulitzer. So what? tell me what you won the Pulitzer for. Well, thank you. So I just, I'll mention, Jill, that you can certainly, you or, or viewers can, can share a, an email with us at info at newslit.org or find us at newslit.org as well uh, if you want to subscribe to the newsletters of, yeah. and the rumor guard alerts and, and our other resources. So um, I spent 29 years as a, as a journalist, primarily doing investigative reporting in the Washington Bureau of the LA Times. Mm -hmm. um, and in 2002, a colleague, Kevin Sack, and I um, spent over a year investigating the Marine Corps aviation program and particularly focused on their Harrier jump jet, which is an attack jet that takes off and lands like a helicopter yes. and flies as a fixed wing plane. And what we discovered that was over the course of uh, many decades, 
Uh, the Harrier was the most dangerous plane in the U.S. military in terms of non-combat accidents. Yeah. And 45 Marines died in those accidents, including some of their, their finest pilots and uh, future generals. And we also found that we found with the Harrier that it wasn't one thing that went wrong. It was really everything. It was an incredibly difficult plane to fly. Uh, it was very hard to maintain. Uh, it was a large engine created by Rolls-Royce that was really that created the vertical lift that was really problematic. Pilots weren't getting enough flight hours. Um, and we found that the, that the Harrier was just one of uh, actually three aircraft uh, that the Marines were getting as their first. This was their own aircraft. They previously mm -hmm. been getting all aircraft from the Navy. And the second was the Osprey, which is a troop transport uh, that had had multiple accidents that had killed uh, uh, 26, uh, mostly Marines, uh, uh, in again non-combat accidents. Um, and and then the Marines were getting their own version of the Joint Strike Fighter, which was already there were some challenges with that uh, aircraft as well. So uh, the series was called the Vertical Vision. And it was really a look at the, the high price the Marines had paid in, in blood and treasure uh, for their aviation system. And, and the fact that uh, these aircraft were, the Harrier in particular, uh, was not being used for what the, the, the primary purpose that had been acquired for it that made it distinctive. Um, and uh, so we looked at all of those cases. We talked to survivors uh, of every one of the Marine pilots who had died. And for the first time, we put that picture together. Thank Great. you. Yeah. Very interesting. So uh, let's apply, we, we've talked so much about, um, you know, news literacy and, and some of the skills that you want students and our audience to take away. And I want to apply some of these lessons to Fox News in particular. Um, as we mentioned earlier, in these Dominion court filings, we saw executives like Rupert Murdoch and anchors like Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, not only knew Trump's big lie was a lie, um, but that they're, uh, they intentionally promoted these lies to uh, despite their, despite knowing so. So I'm wondering first, how do you determine if a network is credible? And do you consider, given all of this, Fox to be a legitimate news source anymore? So one thing I want to emphasize is that we don't tell people what to think. We're really giving them the skills to know how to think. Hmm. And we, we, we do not generally steer people, you know, to or from a given source. And, you know, one of the things I would say broadly, I'll come back to Fox in a moment, you know, is that even within any, any news, news outlet, you'll have a mix of news and opinion and advertising. And of course, when it's, when it's online, it's often disaggregated. And again, within even the finest sources, um, they're imperfect. I, I know this very well as a journalist of 29 years. Um, mistakes are made, not because things are deliberately falsified, but because of the rush of time and sources mislead and, mis you know, honest mistakes may be made and bias may creep in. So we want to give people the ability to make those judgments about what they encounter. Um, so and, and in terms of uh, and then even within so we can talk about Fox, um, you know, you do have uh, a news operation in Fox. Obviously, this attention has been focused primarily on the late the evening hosts um, who have been taking these positions, which we now know that uh, they themselves didn't necessarily believe. Um, so I think it's important even even there to to make some distinctions. Um, but I think it's look, it's it's a it's a powerful lesson uh, for those who. Um, maybe you know watching fox to have this information as you indicated earlier it's not necessarily being shared on fox yeah. um and i think this is an important point to make actually which is that one of the things i would look for in any credible source is does the source acknowledge mistakes do they correct their errors yeah. because there's nobody who's perfect there's nobody who doesn't make them and in fact, and I did a column on this at one point, um, you know, some news outlets that made the most egregious errors, whether it was on an individual story going all the way back to, you know, Janet Cook having made up the stories about the, the, the boy who was supposed to be the heroin addict, the Washington Post in 1980, to broader coverage, you know, the, with the Iraq War uh, and the New York Times, 
um, and order to, to journalists, individual journalists who truly made things up, truly fake news, you know, the Jason Blairs and the Jack Kellys and, uh, you know, um, uh, Stephen Glass, you know, those news organizations are not only acknowledged that they printed false content or, or, uh, or, or were wrong in their coverage, uh, but they did you know, major uh, investigations internally and mea culpas as to how these things happened and told their readers or their viewers the steps they were taking to ensure they don't, would not happen again. And so I think that's, that's a real test uh, for credibility. And I think it's one thing that, that again, consumers can look for um, in, in any source. Um, is there, is there, a means for correcting mistakes and, and a way for the public to weigh in when they see those things to restore trust. But so obviously we're not seeing that with Fox. We're seeing the exact opposite. Um, if you're reading the emails and the texts that have been disclosed as part of the summary judgment motions in the Dominion case, you can see that they admit and the depositions that they admit when they're under oath that they knowingly lied and misled, that they were disdainful of their audience, that they were disdainful of their guests. They knew that guests were lying and yet they promoted those lies. So how, but they're not telling that to their own audience. So unless their audience happens to pick up a alternative source of information. How do you get those people to understand it? I've, I've had a conversation with a Trumper, which ended pretty quickly when she said, well, I believe he won the election. I believe that there were machines that flipped votes. I believe that there was, and she goes through this whole, I said, well, you do know that there were 60 lawsuits that were all lost, including before judges who were appointed by Trump. And you know that the ninjas in Arizona found that there were actually more votes for Biden than had been counted, not more for, for Donald Trump. And she said, well, I don't believe any of that. So how do you reach, how, how do you get those facts to permeate someone's head when they only have one source of information, they believe it, and they absolutely will not brook any disruption of that belief system? So this is a huge societal challenge that is not unique to this case. And you can see it in uh, issues around the pandemic uh, and, you know, so much false content and, and there where life and death was involved, right? The public, uh, the, not only our public uh, health of our country, the public life of the country, but public health. Yes. Or with QAnon, where you see, you know, this kind of surreal delusional thinking that many millions of people believe in that has torn families apart. And so we talk about, I have a colleague who's come up with a term, and this is, I think this is a really important skill for all of us to learn, to try to bridge this divide, and particularly where close friends and family members have gone down these rabbit holes. So we, our colleague has come up with the term PEP, uh, patience, empathy, and persistence. So you need to know that right away, you can't disparage people, you can't belittle them, you can't deride them because you will lose them right away. You also need to know that you're not going to turn them around in one conversation. It's just not going to happen. And so you need to be deeply listening to them and, and making them feel seen and heard and then find a way into the conversation where you might suggest, have you thought about this? How do you know this? You know, where are you getting information? Have you thought about looking at it this way? You know, I have another source. When it comes to public health, you might steer them to, you know, a physician they respect or perhaps a, a member of the clergy, right? Um, and maybe there's a third party to intervene, but you need to find a way in so that you, and maybe there's something where you can say you, you understand their point of view. You, you see why they might think that way, or there's a lot of that information, a lot of people saying that, you know, there's a lot of that out there. But to find a way to kind of widen the aperture gradually to get them to look, to consider other alternative sources, either of information or, or talk to other sources that they might trust and might listen to. 
And then over time, it, it obviously it's not always going to be successful. Um, but if it's particularly if it's somebody that you love, it's a family member, um, uh, it may well be worth the effort to to try to engage in an empathetic way, you know, to get them to begin to see things a little differently. You know, you might I mean, one of the things you might do is give them a, all our resources. But I should have mentioned earlier are available at no cost. They're all free. You know, give them a subscription to get smart about news or yes. suggest what a, idea. Awesome. you know, take a look. Here's this platform. Why don't you take take, you know, just check it out. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, yes. and maybe that's a way to get them to begin to, to look at these things through a different light. Because, again, what we say, we don't just say, well, you shouldn't think this way. You shouldn't believe this. We give you the basis, the evidence. Here's what yeah. to look at. Here's the links. Here's the sources, you know, to make your own judgment on this. I, I'm going to try that because I have patience. Oh, I'm sorry, don't have patience. I have empathy, <laughs> but no, no patience. And so um, I, I'm going to try that. Uh, I think a subscription is the answer. Yes, you know, I, I think especially, you know, it's only March, but I know a lot of people are thinking about Christmas or Christmas diehard fans or the holiday diehard fans. It's a great gift. It's a great uh, holiday present, especially now, but um, I do think a subscription for um, those who might be, you know, in this world would be really useful. I, I want to ask you about something that has been um, getting a lot of attention recently with the Fox News stuff, which is that there's been growing calls to revoke Fox's press credentials from the White House and no longer allow military bases, for instance, sh to show Fox because doing so lends them credibility. Do you agree with these calls? Do you think that the government and different institutions have a responsibility not to give a network like Fox more credibility than it deserves. So I'm 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 a I'm a real First Amendment purist. I I'm very loath, you know, to getting the government involved in making these sort of news judgments. I mean, we saw a lot coming from the other side, obviously during the Trump years, with talking about changing libel laws and and going after the press. Um, you know, I think that's I, I think that's a call for those institutions. Um, it's it's not a place that we tend to go in terms of making those sort of recommendations. Again, our our focus really is on giving people the ability to make make those judgments. Um, and uh, you know, I would leave it to those institutions to yeah. to decide that. So let me ask you a slightly different question, which is how should other networks uh, and cable outlets report the false information that is being put forth by Fox News through through guests like Donald Trump or Sidney Powell or Rudy Giuliani or whoever it is, should they ignore those things? Or is it news just because the former president said it? So this is a really tough judgment call. I think that needs to be made on a case-by-case -case basis because the news organizations face the challenge of when when particularly prominent public officials are are saying things that are patently false that even in reporting on them and knocking them debunking them they actually help amplify that information i mean there's surveys that show that um and so but i think you know when you've got somebody who's who's a who's a maybe a president or maybe a presidential candidate or you have a major news network um, you, there's obviously a, a responsibility to report those things and to do it in a way that is, is accurate and contextual and that, um, you know, says what the facts are um, and what the evidence shows. Um, and, um, you know, to, to do that in a way that informs, forms the public. Mm -hmm. So this was such a wonderful episode. And I wonder just one last question that we always want to ask um, our guests is what advice do you have for young people? And, you know, we've talked about what you hope young people and, and will take away from um, this world and news literacy. But what is your final message to young people out there um, who are living in this world where there's so much information and so much misinformation, disinformation? Well, I, I would say that the, to, to be extremely mindful, um, first of all, to get some news literacy skills. Um, you know, and, and again, our resources are, are available for all uh, to to be able to. It's so important to have some sense of what you're looking at. You know, are you looking at news? Are you looking at opinion? Are you looking at advertising? Are you at propaganda? Are you looking at raw information um, and potentially misinformation and disinformation? And then to be able to to have that that mental 
yardstick uh, to ask some basic questions um, and in terms of who created it and what the sources are and the verification and and then you know to to know what to trust and what to share and and so that you can be engaged in a way that is mindful and responsible and that empowers your voice because i mean for all young people today you know they are their own editor and they can be their own publisher essentially and so you know we want them to play those roles in ways that that are, are best to empower their voice and and to make their contribution you know as positive and meaningful as possible for the wider society I hope everyone will sign up for your website and your newsletters and really start thinking before they quote something from the news, analyze whether they think it's really based on fact or whether they're going to be getting some fake treatment that will actually hurt them, you know, going to the science and health part of your comment, um, where people were actually taking medicine that was dangerous because the president said it was a good thing without any scientific evidence and without any care for how it might hurt people. Thank so, you so much. Thank you. It's you been a too. pleasure. Thanks so much, Alan. That was such an important episode, a news literacy project. I urge everyone watching or listening to check out their website. They have great resources. And in this moment, it's so important. And uh, Jill, I, I want to get into your thoughts, but I, as I was, he was talking, when he mentioned the integration of news literacy in English classes or other classes, I thought back to, I did this one exercise in my, it was my advanced placement language and composition class in high school. And one of the things that we did that I thought really opened my eyes to the difference between fact and opinion, uh, real news reporting versus opinion reporting is hedging language. And so our teacher had us do this exercise where we would look at a real kind of reporting kind of news report from the New York Times. And we would look if they used words like should, could, might, kind of cautious words. There was basically none of that in there. Opinion uh, columns used a lot of those type of words, could, should, might, may. And it was just one of those moments where you kind of saw the difference between, okay, this is what real reporting, hard journalism looks like versus opinion. And I don't think enough people know about that, but it's just kind of goes to show why news literacy, you know, maybe if we don't have a news literacy course by itself, we can integrate news literacy and get teachers to do these lessons. Because even that moment has stuck with me um, since and just kind of knowing how to read an article, knowing what words to pay attention to, all of that is so important. But this episode was, I thought, really informative. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about what Alan had to say. Well, obviously, this has been a major concern of mine, that people are acting on total fabricated information. They're yes, voting yes. on it. They're electing people to office because they believe things that are completely made up and that have no factual foundation. And so, yes, I think we need to have critical thinking. Yes, I think we need to have news literacy taught. I think that we have to watch for keywords, like you were saying, words like think or believe. Yes. Those aren't facts. If someone thinks it or believes it, that's their opinion. It's not a fact. And, uh, you know, you have to watch out for that. Although, of course, in the most egregious cases, the people putting those forward are not using those words. That's They're true. saying it's true. Yep. So you're not going to spot it. Um, you know, he wasn't critical of Fox News. I will be. Um, when, when you're listening to Tucker Carlson, it's an outrage that this is true. Well, it's not an outrage because it isn't true. It's made yeah, up. Yeah, and, yeah. It, you know, I mean, so we that isn't the only way you can tell. You do need to expose yourself to alternative uh, sources of information and not just say, because I want this to be true, it must be true. It, it isn't necessarily yeah, so, okay. well, we will put all of those links in our show notes show notes for you to um, check out if you're listening to this and if you are watching this on YouTube and if you want to get it, you can check out the audio version tomorrow, Wednesday. We'll include all those links in our show notes. But there's some um, other topics we want to get to during our chit chat. The first is, um, this is a bit of a more lighthearted topic. Um, it was the Oscars over the weekend. I know both you and I um, love watching the Oscars and it's always a great moment for our country to come together and kind of share our uh, unity around um, the arts. Um, I mentioned that I was I was 
at the Oscars, not in the theater, but I, w- I got a glimpse of the red carpet and it was um, really fun to see. But uh, that night was, I mean, filled with a lot of awards, first time awards for um, people like Michelle Yu and um, other actors winning for the first time, which is quite remarkable. What did you think of the Oscars? And I don't know, did you watch the red carpet, the fashion? What did you think? <laughs> I'm of not course really I watched the fashion um, and I record it and skip through the ads because otherwise it's in a terminable amount of time. Um, And I thought the show was very well done this year. I really, really enjoyed watching it. I have to say that this is the first year where I haven't seen at least most of the nominees. In the past, I've even gone to the Evanston Theater used to have um, an evening of showing the shorts so that you could watch the live and animated short films that were nominated, which in the old days when we used to have Oscar parties, I would have a big, you know, lead on other people because I wasn't just blindly guessing on the name of a title. I had actually seen those movies. Yes, yes. This year I saw very few of them and I saw some trailers and went, I, I will never see everywhere, every time, every place, whatever that's called. I'm sorry. It's just not a movie that, I will ever, ever see. I did as soon as I saw that Elephant Whispers won for best documentary, I went online to look for it. And I have to say, I was very disappointed. Mm. I I love elephants. As you know, Victor, I love all animals, but um, I've been on many safaris and elephants are intelligent, caring, sentient beings who take care of each other, who, I mean, they're wonderful. And I just felt like this did not give me as much information. And I also, the animals who were being rescued were chained and it just killed. Oh my God. I just warn anyone who's going to listen or watch this movie that the elephants, while they're loved, they are definitely loved and taken care of. They are chained. And that that just sort of was like, I can't watch this. This is too you know, there, there, there was a moment, I, I think, um, for those who have been listening to this podcast for a while, our friend Clarissa Ward um, was a part of the Nalvani documentary. And um, Nalvani won, um, I think it was Best Documentary of the Year. I might be mistaken, but they won an award. So that was some good news. And my my favorite line of uh, of the night was from Jimmy Kimmel, who said, you know, he, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, that, you know, editors are so powerful. You can take 44,000 hours of January 6th footage and turn <laughs> it into a mere... Um, tourist visit and it's true you know editors are powerful even in that sense yeah Um, that that was a very good line and he had a lot of good lines I thought he did an excellent excellent job and the show kept moving and I I enjoyed it and there are many of the movies that I was introduced to by seeing something about them that I look forward to seeing including The Whale Um, Brendan Fraser won for best actor Uh, and and there were so many good acting jobs. Yeah. I mean, uh, unbelievable. Um, and um, I, I, I look forward to seeing many of the movies, but yeah. um, on to some more serious things. Um, let's talk a little bit about SVB, yeah. the bank yeah. that failed yeah. dramatically. Yeah. It was the 16th largest bank in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next day, Signature Bank in New York also failed. Yeah. Um, and the Depositors in that bank are all being bailed out, even if they had more than $250,000, which number one, if you have $250,000, you're pretty well off, right? (laughs) Let's put it. And and they're getting bailed out. And you, Victor, for your student loans, are never going to get bailed out. You can't even get the debt relief for a little portion of the unbelievable amount that you're paying and you can never discharge it in bankruptcy. Yeah. Which is, and so let's talk a little bit about how your generation must feel where the tech investors who put their money in this bank are getting bailed out and um, you're not. I mean, there is a big fairness argument here and it, and it is, you know, at the end of the day, who wins? And a tweet that I saw that really struck my attention was basically, I mean, you have Mark Cuban, you have all these people um, saying, you know, bail out Silicon Valley tonight. The Fed's approved it. Other instances, bail out Goldman Sachs or give them the $824 billion that they need. The Fed's approved it. Jamie Dimon saying JP Morgan Chase needs 
XYZ billion dollars, the Fed's approved it, but then you have your average person who wants, you know, student loan forgiveness or, um, you know, someone whose family got cancer, can we get Medicare? The Fed say we're broke or they don't, they don't allow it. And so it really is, I mean, these tech investors, I mean, Silicon Valley Bank was the bank, apparently, as I've read, is, is like, if you were a part of Silicon Valley Bank, you were seen as cool. And so a lot of the tech investors went there um, and, and they deposited money in there. And now the, the Federal Reserve said that they're going to bail them out. And I guess for President Biden, the good news is that no tax... Bail them out beyond the... I mean, beyond the 250 Everybody who acts sensibly knows that they can put $250,000 in a bank. Right. Not in an account, but in a bank. Because if you have three accounts at a hundred, right, only two fifty is protected. Not, it's not an individual account. But anyway, I mean, you can account on that being. Yeah. You know, the government promises you that they aren't going to let you fail that way. Right. In order to encourage you to put money in the bank, so that the bank can do good things with your money. Yeah. But um, I mean, it, it's, and yet there's a lot of opposition to helping students out. You know, it's sort of like, well, I paid mine back. Why should you get yours? Uh, and of course, when I went to college, tuition was in the hundreds per semester, yeah. not in the hundreds of thousands per year. Right. And uh, I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating at a hundred thousand, but you know, fifty to eighty thousand is not an uncommon amount of annual tuition. Right. Whereas for me, it was under a thousand. Yeah. And so it's now. Also, money was worth a different amount then. So a thousand is worth more today than, but it's not worth eighty thousand. It's not yeah. worth forty thousand. Um, so, uh, but maybe- it does, you know, it does beg the question for a lot of young people who are looking. You know, so many things are happening in our lives, but why can't the Fed take action on those things? I mean, I think it is. It's just kind of it's you know who wins in society those with you know resources and those with power and those who have a lot of money. But what about everyone else? And I think that's a big question that a lot of people are wondering. I think for good reason. Um, but I do want to touch on one other thing with this, which is I mean we can't look at this without looking at through the lens of what happened in 2018 with Trump deregulating a lot of the portions of Dodd Frank. Which if you kind of compare if you kind of compare what was before Dodd Frank or what before 20 happened in 2018 and what happened in 2018, it seems like those policies is kind of what led to this happening. Um, those stress tests could have prevented this bank from yeah. um, basically crumbling. And it, now I think um, today, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Katie Porter are introducing new legislation to reinstate um, those portions of Dodd-Frank. Whether or not it'll pass in this Republican House, who knows? But um, you know, it seems like that was also a big factor in, in what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Well, that's a huge factor. I mean, yeah. it's, and, you know, you can go back to the deregulation of the rail industry right. and look at what happened in Pennsylvania and the Ohio. damage that's, I'm sorry, Ohio, um, and, and look at the damage there. And it's because of deregulation and you yeah. can't have it both ways. You know, if it, you, you're deregulated so that you can do anything you want, except then you get bailed out when you have a horrible disaster. Um, I mean, that's, you know, it's a serious issue. Speaking of deregulation and promises, I hate to mention it, but the Willow Project is something that I certainly understood. The man that you and I both were delegates for, that we both supported, uh, which is the current president, um, promised that there'd be no Arctic drilling. Right. Be no, and now the Willow Project is being approved. Yeah. What do you make of that? What do you think? What is, what is your fellow? I thinking? I didn't like it. Jen, every single every single friend I've talked to, every single young person on Twitter I've seen has been really critical of this. And I mean, if you just look at the consequences, I was doing just a little bit of research about this last night, and I mean, the amount of um, greenhouse gases it would produce in 30 years is 270 million tons of greenhouse gases in over 30 years. That's up to that's almost one million cars. What, uh, what the average number of greenhouse, greenhouse gases a car would uh, one million cars would produce, which is crazy. And so, I don't know why they did this. Honestly, um, I it's it, you know I applauded the Biden administration when they passed the largest ever investment in climate change through the Inflation Reduction Act. But this is taking a step backwards. And I don't know if it's because of politics. It's because you know he wants to um, appease to that portion of the country, but for a generation that has cared so much about climate change and our 
planet and whether or not we'll live in a habitable planet, this is a move that's going to make the planet undeniably less ha habitable. And so um, I think there's been a lot of criticism and for good reason. And I, I don't know, can you think of a reason why they would want to do this other than I, maybe politics or to win over the Joe Mansions of the world? I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the cost of gas has skyrocketed because of the uh, yeah. unconscionable invasion of Ukraine by Russia and what it's done to gas production. Um, and so there is maybe they're seeing a short-term need, but the destruction that goes with this to satisfy the short-term need, maybe it's time to just go cold turkey and stop using fossil fuels. And that's what this encourages is continued use of fossil fuels. So I'm not sure either economically, politically, environmentally, what the reason is. And this seems like such a big U-turn from yes, a campaign sir. promise that I don't, I don't get that either. Um, but since I mentioned uh, Ukraine and Russia, um, I, I wanted to mention that there is now the International Criminal Court has started a serious investigation of war crimes by Russia. And we've had at least two guests on this show yep. uh, uh, to talk about that subject. Um, and I'm encouraging people who are listening now to go back and listen to Rachel Van Landingham and Lori Blank, who's, um, who were both experts on this, and you know, find out exactly what constitutes a war crime, what are the consequences. And unfortunately, basically, although it seems obvious that the International Criminal Court will find that there were crimes committed, Russia's not going to give up their their officials. And so there'll be no consequences for this. Um, no, not, not the kind of consequences that I think you and I would like. Um, and in terms of accountability and consequences... Should we talk about D.A. Bragg? And yeah, but we're running short on time, but let's do it. I mean, there was some breaking news. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, on Monday, apparently the Trump attorneys met with um, you know, the Manhattan D.A. and said that we do not want you to uh, indict uh, our, our client. Um, Jill, what does that mean? Does that tell you anything about where this investigation is headed? Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, he was the fact that he, Donald Trump, was invited and offered the opportunity to present his case before the grand jury means that they're thinking of asking the grand jury to indict and they want to, in fairness, give him the opportunity to come in and say, no, this is a misinterpretation and I didn't do the things that you're thinking are bad and here's why. Um, he has turned down that. But I think what we did learn was that prior to that, his lawyers had actually already met because in cases like this, it is not uncommon for lawyers, for white collar criminals or organized crime people uh, in the bigger cases to come in and talk to prosecutors to say, have you thought about these facts? Here's some evidence that we have that would maybe change your point of view. That's already happened. And so when you combine all of those facts, it seems like it's not going to be long before the DA ask the grand jury to indict or says to the grand jury, I don't think there's enough evidence. Yeah. And to me right now, the only question is, is the indictment going to be for a felony or for a misdemeanor? Not whether there will be one. I think that it's pretty clear based on the witnesses and recent witnesses include Kellyanne Conway and Hope Hicks and um, Michael Cohn is in today for his second day. And I think there's already rumor that he's coming back for a third day. Um, so I think that they're moving close to a decision yeah. one way or the other. And, you know, I don't like to predict those things. So we're going to have to wait and see. But yeah. maybe by our show next week, uh, which we hope everyone listening will join us, um, maybe we'll have that to talk about. So it seems like I was on mute. Yes, I agree. And, you know, who would have thought that it would be Stormy Daniels, a porn star who could take down Donald Trump? But I guess, fingers crossed, that happens. I have, um, I have some very good Stormy pins. So I'm all set oh, for that. You are prepared for that moment. Okay, well, 
th- th- that day can't come soon enough because we all have to see it. But you know that that if DA Bragg, if you're listening, that well, should be a reason. Let's Trump. say that's not the only thing I'm looking forward to. We still have Georgia. Yes. We still have uh, Jack Smith, and yeah. yes. let's look at all of those. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for watching this episode of iGen Politics. We will be back next week for another episode. Um, and hopefully you'll tune in then. And in the meantime, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, on youtube.com slash Politicon, or wherever you follow your podcasts. Thanks so much again for listening to this, and we will see you next week.